This episode is brought to you by Tegas. Over the years of our partnership with Tegas, they have evolved from a pure expert network into a full company intelligence platform. I've been so impressed by the platform that my firm, Positive Sum, recently made an investment in Tegas. We did so because we feel that Tegas will be the gold standard platform for investing research for decades to come. Tegas streamlines the investing research process so you can get up to speed and find answers to critical questions on companies faster and more efficiently. The Tegas platform surfaces the hard-to-get qualitative insights, gives instant access to critical public financial data through BAM SEC, and helps you set up customized expert calls. It's all done on a single modern SaaS platform that offers 360-degree insight into any public or private company. As a listener, you can take Tegas for a free test drive by visiting tegas.co slash Patrick. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This week and next, we'll break down the two biggest levers we have in the fight against climate change, carbon reduction and carbon removal. Today, we'll focus on carbon removal. To break down where we stand and what needs to be done, I'm joined by Nan Ransahoff. Nan is the head of climate at Stripe and also leads Frontier, which is an advanced market commitment of some $1 billion to kickstart a market for carbon removal solutions. We discuss the broad climate picture, the state of technology today, and the potential for good if we can scale up low carbon energy sources. Please enjoy this primer on carbon removal. So Nan, I think the appropriate place to start is very high level with the basic picture of carbon in the atmosphere, sources of supply, sources of demand, just level set with us for like what exists today so that we can talk about all the work that you're doing at Stripe, working on climate. But I think we need to just lay the groundwork to begin. What is the picture of global climate today as it relates to human-generated carbon? The world emits about 50 gigatons of CO2 equivalents every year. And to stay within reasonable warming targets, we need to get that down to net zero by 2050 or before. To do this, there are two main things that we can do. We can either stop emitting in the first place, or we can pull CO2 that is already in the atmosphere and ocean out and store it permanently. The world is going to have to do a huge amount of both, but carbon removal, and I would say roughly 90%-ish of focus, should go towards the emissions reduction piece of the equation. But carbon removal is a really important part of our suite of climate solutions. And it's very underdeveloped in large part because we didn't really realize we were going to need as much of it as we now do until the 2018 IPCC report came out. So our work at Frontier and Stripe is really focused on how can we get the carbon removal side of the equation on its best possible trajectory. Well, we'll probably spend almost all the conversation talking about removal, but maybe just say a word or two on emissions. What has been the trend on emissions? What are the major contributing sources to those trends? What has you most optimistic and most pessimistic about the trends in emissions between now and 2050? Historically, emissions has been 
pretty closely tied to energy use. As population has grown, as the quality of life of the average human has gone up, emissions have gone up as well. This is everything from how we get around to making stuff to the food that we eat. It is all the things that are used to live the lives that we live as people. And this has been going up since the industrial era and recently has started to flatten out. We now have to bend that curve all of the way down. And a big chunk at the heart of climate is how do we decouple energy use from carbon intensity? So how can we continue to consume energy and use energy, but have that not emit CO2 equivalent into the atmosphere that is driving climate change? And so when we look at decarbonization broadly, you can think about this from how do we make sure all of the devices that we use are electric so that they can ingest renewable energy? How do we make sure all those sources are clean? So switching from oil and coal and natural gas to solar and wind and nuclear, how do we rewrite the grid so that we can connect this intermittent supply to much more demand that is now on the electric grid? There's a whole host of things that are going to need to happen to achieve these emissions reduction goals. It really encompasses the entire global economy. I have a question or two on supply and demand. Big picture questions. The first is on demand. What do you think are the top-down and bottom-up forces that will affect demand for energy in that same period over the next, call it, 30 years? Because it seems like our per-human watt usage has just gone one-directional, and it's afforded us all the amazing modern luxuries of living, as you point out, just living our lives. What do you think will happen just in that piece, like the actual, let's say, wattage consumed? This is just demand. Forgetting supply for a minute. Do you think that will change much? Do you think that will level off? Are humans just destined to consume more and more and more energy per capita over time? What do you think? Quality of life and energy per capita are closely linked to one another. So I think my hope is that we can figure out how to continue to consume more energy and increase the quality of life for humans without negative environmental consequences. I think that both in a per capita basis and a absolute basis, this is likely going to keep going up as population grows and as we raise that floor. But again, the question is, how do we make sure that we're doing this without increasing emissions? And that seems based on what we've seen from a number of countries already showing the ability to do this, we can decouple economic growth and energy use from carbon intensity. You mentioned, obviously, sources of energy, some new ones, some old ones, and then the sources of demand, so supply and demand. What about the connection point between those two? You mentioned the grid, which seems like a word that gets used a lot. And in a very vague sense, I know what the grid is. But what is legacy about that that needs to change? How does energy move around? How could that be improved to better accommodate new sources of energy in the future? Let's start with the demand side and think about what's going to change in terms of the amount of energy that is going to require the grid. If we are moving from gas cars to electric cars, those cars need to charge somehow and they are going to charge from the grid. If we're moving from gas stoves to electric stoves or induction, that also needs electricity. We're going to be adding a ton of demand to the electric grid. So first of all, the problem is we just need to expand capacity in a huge way. The second thing is that on the supply side, we need to shift from oil, coal, gas, which are reliable, predictable sources of energy. You burn a coal plant all the time, whereas we're moving towards largely more intermittent sources of energy. So the wind doesn't blow all the time. The sun doesn't shine all the time. So there's a pretty interesting supply demand matching problem here for how do you 
match intermittent supply with a lot more demand. And the sort of way that we connect those two things is going to require a lot of new hardware and a lot of new software to make those pieces connect together and work well. You mentioned a specific report in, I think you said 2018 that came out that made it clear why removal itself is such an important part of this story or should be. Maybe just describe the findings there, what we learned in that report, because I think that'll set the stage nicely for a deep conversation on removal technologies and purpose. There's this concept of a carbon budget where we need to reduce the total amount of carbon dioxide that humans have emitted and stay within that budget. If we had reduced emissions years and decades ago when scientists initially warned us, carbon removal wouldn't be as big a part of the story as we think it is now. Because we've been rather slow to reduce emissions, carbon removal has become a larger part of the story than it otherwise would have been. So roughly by 2050, we need to get emissions from that 50 billion tons to net zero. And we think that about 5 billion tons, roughly depends on the model that you look at, but roughly 5 billion tons of removal is going to be needed every single year. And it ramps up between now and then, and it continues to ramp after then. The US emits about 6 billion tons a year. So the volumes that we're talking here are just absolutely massive. And we are functionally at the starting line. Today, cumulatively, about 10,000 tons of carbon removal has been permanently removed, which is crazy. There is just a huge gap between where we are today and where we need to be. So the speed at which we need to get this industry from zero to 100, so to speak, is extraordinary. The ability to get carbon into the atmosphere seems to be a specialty of the human race. We've gotten quite good at that. Getting it out seems like an interesting technology challenge. We'll talk more about markets and the dynamics of who pays and how and what the marketplace looks like, which is obviously what you're working on at Frontier in just a few minutes. But talk us through the state of the technology itself, because removal of carbon sounds itself energy intensive. So there's this interesting, like, can you make the technology fuel efficient or energy efficient enough or not emitive enough to make sure this works? So how do we do this today? What are some of the ideas for the actual methods of removal from the atmosphere? The one that I think everybody's seen a picture of is direct air capture. It looks like these giant fans that are pulling CO2 in. They then find the 412 particles of CO2 from the other million air particles. They condense those together and inject it underground for geologic storage. That is energy intensive. Finding and separating those 412 particles of CO2 from the other million air particles, that capture piece is very energy intensive. Technologies like direct air capture, which I just described, are largely predicated on widespread availability of low carbon intensity energy. So it necessitates a lot of solar, a lot of wind, a lot of nuclear. You have to look at the entire life cycle of the technology in order to decide whether it's actually worth it. You're spot on there. It's useful also, though, to look at what nature does already by itself. So plants already capture carbon for free. They have solar panels built into their leaves. They do the capture piece, and then they store the carbon in their biomass. Rocks also do this. They just do it over really long periods of time. Most of the world's carbon is actually stored in the lithosphere, in rocks. It just happens over hundreds of thousands of years. One of the questions that we've been asking ourselves and starting to look at is, how can we harness the best of what nature does, but mitigate some of its downsides? Nature does the capture piece for free. It has its own source of energy, but it's often not permanent. And it takes up a lot of arable land, which humans need to do other things. Another example of a company that we purchased from is called Running Tide. And they take rope 
They seed that rope with kelp spores. They drop it into the ocean and that kelp grows over six to nine months. And when the biomass gets big enough, the buoy essentially fills up with water and it drops to the bottom of the ocean where it then stays forever. So it's kind of like growing trees and then storing them on the proverbial desert floor where they'll stay there permanently once they get below the thermocline. This is an example of a hybrid nature engineered solution that we think meets our criteria. There's another company called Term Industrial that is taking waste biomass like corn stover. They pyrolyze it, which just means heating it up and turning it into bio oil. And then they inject that bio oil underground. Again, another really good example of harnessing the capture piece, which the energy intensive piece that nature does for free, and then trying to make that permanent. There's a lot of different examples of companies, and we can talk about some of the exciting ones that I'm hoping that we'll see in the future. But because, again, this field is so early, I think we're just starting to see the kinds of heterogeneity that we want to see and creativity and approaches over the next couple of years. I think that we are going to hopefully mature a cohort of companies to actually get to the point where we're ready to start scaling up a diverse set of approaches. What are some of those ideas? It sounds like you've got maybe some concepts that you'd be excited to see explored. What are those concepts and where do the ideas come from? We published a roadmap a couple of weeks ago that basically there's a hundred gaps in there of all the different kinds of things. They vary in altitude, but some of them are high level ideas and some of them are specific knowledge gaps. But essentially, these are a collection of things that both we and the rest of the field think are really promising relative to what's been tried to date. There's a lot in there around synthetic biology. How can we engineer nature to be more permanent? What would recalcitrant biomass actually look like? There's a lot of ideas. And again, this engineering nature to harness the best of what it's able to do and mitigate some of its downsides in really creative ways. There's a huge amount of low-hanging fruit that the right folks, if they hopefully see this, this roadmap will be able to pick off. I'd love to do the same supply demand discussion around carbon removal itself. So you mentioned some company examples there like Charm and others that can do this for you if you pay them to do it. We can talk more about that too. But where's the demand coming from? Who is paying for this to happen? In what proportions? How do you think that will evolve over time? Historically, the answer has been no one. And that has been the problem. Part of the reason that carbon removal has had this chicken and egg problem and been a bit stuck in the mud is there haven't been customers to buy the solutions that Charm and Running Tide and Climeworks are actually building. As a result, if you're an entrepreneur, why do you want to build a company that isn't going to have a revenue stream? And if you're an investor, why would you invest in a company that isn't going to have a revenue stream? That's just not a very compelling value proposition. So the crux of the work that we've been focused on is how do you build a market for carbon removal for early stage solutions, especially in the absence of policy. At a very high level, you can think about the kinds of buyers for these technologies, mostly as companies and governments, individuals to some extent, but the bulk of the funding is actually going to come from companies and governments. And the reasons for buying are changing over time. We are moving from what I would characterize now as voluntary markets to more of a compliance market in the future. Say a bit about offsets and why offsets and removal might be different things. Because I think people are familiar with buying carbon offsets and that that's something that lots of corporations might put in their ESG page on their annual report or something to shareholders. Draw the line between those two things just to make sure it's clear. Offsets have become a very loaded term. They mean a lot of different things to different people. Offsets can span both the emissions reduction side and the carbon removal side. They also have huge variance in quality. Most people are trained to think that 
the average offset is a dollar to $15. If we were going to solve climate change for a dollar to $15 a ton, we would have done it by now. There isn't enough offsets to scale to the size of the problem. And the quality, as I mentioned, is variable. For example, a lot of the California offset market burned down in the last couple of years. It is not permanent. Many of these solutions are not permanent. And many of these solutions are not additional. What we're talking about with carbon removal is approaches that meet a set of criteria that we've laid out. Namely, it removes and stores carbon permanently for at least a thousand years. There's a path to it being less than $100 a ton. There's a path to it being more than half a gigaton a year in scale. And it doesn't compete for other sources of arable land. There's a whole set of other criteria, but that's the crux. We're really looking at, is this permanently removing an additional ton of CO2 that is already in the atmosphere and ocean? That's the focus of what we're really working on. The arable land constraint, what does that preclude? If that wasn't in there, what stuff would happen more that would compete for that arable land that we need for other uses? Trees and soil carbon sequestration, for the most part, wouldn't meet our thousand year permanence criteria. Part of the challenge with trees, we love trees, but (laughs) there's only so many trees you can plant before running out of land. And what we're trying to get at with that criteria is we're not going to be geophysically constrained by the amount of land we can use for something. So let's say I'm a really smart entrepreneur out there and I would love to build a research technology in this area that meets all your criteria. My biggest problem is I don't know where the demand is going to come from. I don't know who the buyer of my service is going to be. Talk about how you've thought through this challenge and the role of installing a market, supply and demand mediating market for carbon removal through your work at Frontier Infrastripe. It's been a multi-phase journey. So I'll start off with phase one was a small experiment that we ran back in 2019 to buy a million dollars of permanent carbon removal at any available price from companies that were attempting to do that. When we announced our purchases back in 2019, two things happened. One, the carbon removal community had almost a weirdly positive reaction to this announcement, which is funny because a million dollars is a pretty modest amount of money, which to us just said, this field has been super starved for customers such that a million dollars made anybody bat an eye. The second thing was we got a lot of outreach from Stripe users. So Stripe builds economic infrastructure for the internet. We have millions of customers all over the world that use us to do things like process payments and invoicing and business operations. A bunch of them reach out saying, hey, I've wanted to do something in climate for a while, but I haven't because it's hard to figure out what to do. If we send you some money, could you figure out what to do with it? And it was the combination of those two things that ultimately led to what is now phase two, Stripe Climate. And this is making it easy for any Stripe business to direct a fraction of their revenue to carbon removal, which we then pull together and use it to buy even more carbon removal down the cost curve. This was like taking the million dollars and trying to turn it into tens of millions of dollars. And about a year and a half ago, our team got in a room and we said, okay, well, on the one hand, this field has made a huge amount of progress over the past couple of years. And at the same time, we are still not at all on track to get to the scale of carbon removal that the world needs. What's the next big step that we could take? And we came up with a bunch of ideas and we killed a bunch of ideas. One of the ideas that we couldn't kill is something called an advanced market commitment. And the idea of an advanced market commitment is basically to send a loud demand signal to entrepreneurs and investors that there is going to be a market for your technologies so that you have the confidence to start building. This was an idea that we borrowed from the vaccine world. 
So back in the mid 2000s, we wanted a pneumococcal vaccine for low income countries. And pharma companies didn't want to spend the resources to develop and distribute that vaccine because these are low income countries, and they weren't sure that there was going to be a customer to actually buy the end product. Economists came up with this idea, what if we could pull funds from philanthropies and governments into a pot and say, if you can build a vaccine to spec, there is at least a billion and a half dollars of customer demand for you. And it worked. This compelled the pharma companies to get into the space to develop the vaccine and pulled forward a solution that would have otherwise either not developed at all or taken a much, much longer time to do so, which ended up saving a lot of lives. So we took the same concept and said, what if we applied it to carbon removal? What if we could mimic a secure market to compel suppliers to start actually building? Now we can talk if it's of interest of all the differences between how do you modify the concept of an AMC for vaccines to carbon removal, but the crux of the underlying idea is the same. How can you give suppliers confidence that there's going to be a market for the solution that they're building? So what we announced back in April was a billion dollar commitment from Stripe, Alphabet, Shopify, Meta, and McKinsey to buy permanent carbon removal at inefficient prices over the next nine years. And then talk about the process of getting that group of companies together to do that. If that represents in a microcosm, the type of coordination and willingness that we would need at a much, I don't know what the actual number is, some huge multiple of that over time, what worked, what didn't work? Does it feel sustainable what those companies did and what were their various motivations? The companies that ultimately joined and co-founded Frontier are doing this because one, all of these companies have ambitious climate commitments already. They also see the value in creating new supply rather than just myopically competing over the supply that exists today. And they're also forward-thinking companies. They understand cost curves. They understand that ultimately what is a pretty wonky theory of change. And it's an expensive theory of change. Somebody has to pay the price premiums for these technologies while they're at an early stage so that they can get cheaper over time. We are all basically buying the Tesla Roadsters so that they can get cheaper overcoming iterations. But every company that joined in really buys into that. To your point about how sustainable is this and where do we go next? That is a very important one and one that keeps me up a lot. In general, I think that the voluntary markets, which is what we're seeing now, these are companies volunteering to make climate commitments, companies that are volunteering to buy permanent carbon removal at high prices from early stage companies. This is going to get us, I hope, to first base, but it isn't going to get us all the way there. If you think about where the world needs to be by 2050, at 5 billion tons per year, at $100 a ton, or even like $10 a ton if we are wildly optimistic. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars per year in demand that is needed. Global GDP is $100 trillion. It's very hard to imagine the voluntary markets altruistically getting us there. We are going to need to eventually transition to compliance markets. The government is going to need to do some version of a tax, a carbon tax. I'm not a policy expert, so I won't design policy on this call, but some version of this to price the negative externality of carbon and push that onto various players or procure carbon removal directly. Federal procurement, I think, is another big lever. But whatever it is, at the scale we're talking about here, that's going to be very important. 
One of the things that's different about carbon removal versus energy, for example, is humans derive value from energy. There's intrinsic value in producing energy. So geothermal is expensive today, but can be really cheap and reliable in the future. Once we get it down to that market price, we're golden. With carbon removal, there's no value in it. So there is no intrinsic market for the thing. The voluntary markets today are buoying that, but it's unlikely to get to hundreds of billions of dollars per year in demand. So we are largely building this plane as we're flying it and very interested in how we can help accelerate some of the policy to keep the market growing really quickly. The answer to this question requires maybe a bit of speculation, but I'm just interested in you've thought so much about it, so I'll ask it anyway. It seems like through history, governments have been really good at making big investments or big changes around acute necessity. I think of the Manhattan Project or things that are there to solve a very acute, visible, tangible pressing problem. And they've been much less good at boiling the frog in the pan type problems, which 2050 is a long time from now for anybody. It's not like a around the corner galvanizing event. How do you think we can square those two things that we seem to do better when there's an acute crisis as a species versus a very slow burn, even if it's ultimately a sudden set of big problems? What do you think will play out here with governments? How will we be able to act and think really long term when history suggests that we're not necessarily great at that? You're right. You mentioned the Manhattan Project. I also think Operation Warp Speed is a great example of this. Both of these are examples of huge coordinated efforts where, in the case of Operation Warp Speed, the U.S. government is putting all of its muscle behind developing a vaccine. And we did it very, very quickly and very effectively for the most part. You sort of illuminated, I think, what has plagued the climate challenge to date. This is the canonical tragedy of the commons problem. The negative externalities are diffuse and they're long-term and they're hard to pin down to what their causes are. I don't know if I have a great answer to this question, but I do think we've started to see a couple of things give me hope. The first is that with the IRA, the big $380 billion bill that passed in the US this summer, this is a huge amount of money that is going to subsidize and accelerate climate solutions. Forget about carbon removal for a second. When it comes to energy, the solution that is best for climate to be at least as cheap, if not cheaper and better than the dirty alternative, that is very feasible for a lot of these climate solutions. But in many cases, it needs money and talent and effort to get it there. And I think we are starting to see governments make big strides in doing this. And part of it becomes a national security issue. You want to be in control of as much energy as you feasibly can. I think there's an opportunity for economic growth from these new industries that are actually starting to take off. I'm not sure there's going to be like a single watershed moment where everyone comes to realize that we're going to turn this into Operation Warp Speed. There's going to be a collection of efforts and we are going to chisel away at this from different angles. I think governments are going to step up in new ways. We're seeing, as we have with Frontier, private companies step up and try to be creative and help in the way that they can. And it's going to be a collection of all of these efforts. I think one of the things that has been surprising to me over the past five years, I was working in climate back in 2012 at Opower and Nest. Climate was this niche thing. There were a couple companies that were doing really exciting work in the climate space, but it was certainly not part of the general conversation. That has shifted a huge amount in the past couple of years. And I think we are starting to see companies and individuals saying, this is happening. 
this is an all hands on deck situation. What assets do I bring to the table? What skills do I bring to the table that I can help accelerate solutions here? And I think a lot of good can come from that. I think there are going to be creative solutions that we start to see that we've already started to see that will translate into big change over the coming decades. What was the seed of personal motivation for you in this problem? It sounds like you've been involved, interested, working on it for a really long time from a couple different angles. How did you get so interested? I've been interested in climate since a fourth grade science class that I remember learning about greenhouse gases and thinking, oh my gosh, why isn't everybody freaking out about this? Started actually working on it a couple years after graduating from undergrad. I was at Opower and Nest, which are more on the emissions reduction side. I was at Uber, working on Uber Pool, trying to get more people in fewer cars. The thing that focused my attention on carbon removal was I was reading the 2018 IPCC report in 2019. Despite having worked on climate for a while, I needed to re-educate myself on some of the basic math and some of the basic levers. One of the big things that jumped out to me that I had not been aware of before was how the models are also relying on carbon removal to make the math work. I started to dissect carbon removal, the companies that are actually doing the removal and demand, the organizations that are paying for removal. I started down the supply rabbit hole and realized that given how early these companies are, I'm probably not the best. I'm not a scientist by training. I'm not an engineer by training. So this is probably not the best area for me to apply my skills. I'm also not a policymaker. So that was out. The question that I really became obsessed with was how do you create a market for carbon removal in the absence of policy? At the time, Stripe had just published a blog post talking about the million dollars to buy permanent carbon removal. And Christian published this blog post who I know you had on recently. I started talking to Stripe because I was interested in their theory of change. It really resonated with me. And then one thing led to another. And that's what brought me to Stripe. Can you say a bit about how you think the profit motive figures into all of this? It's obviously, as you pointed out, going to be a mix of nonprofits, for-profit companies, a mix of motivations. And a market system, market economy system has been pretty damn effective historically. What do you think about that concept of where profit is the right motivator to precipitate change here? In what areas might it not be appropriate? Like it seems as though Again, I'm not a policy expert, like some things like healthcare, some universal goods, the profit motive may not be enough, might need to be supplemented in some way. Talk me through, since you're working on a market concept, the role of the profit motive in your mind to solve this problem. I think it's really important. And what we're trying to do with Frontier, it's a billion dollars of revenue for companies that are building carbon removal. So let's maybe take the macro question and make it a little bit more specific. If you are a supplier, if you are Peter building Charm, and you go to the bank and you say, hey, I want a big loan for a bunch of pyrolyzers that I'm building, the bank comes back and says, well, I'm not going to give you a loan because nobody's going to buy the thing that you're selling. And he's stuck. He needs the money to build the pyrolyzers to sell the thing. The way that we've structured Frontier is to, in large part, enter into offtake agreements with the suppliers. So we will write promises to buy the tons coming off of these suppliers' facilities such that Peter can then go back to the bank and say, look, I have a customer. They promised to buy it at X price. Now can I have a loan? What we're trying to do with Frontier is almost create a mini microcosm of a market. The billion dollars isn't going to get to the scale that the entire field needs over the next couple of decades, but we can start to get that flywheel going so that the next time he needs a loan, his pyrolyzers are further along 
and he can sell them for $200 a ton instead of $500 a ton, et cetera. How about Frontier itself? How do you think about whether the sponsor of this thing should be itself profit-seeking? Obviously, Stripe's a for-profit business. Stripe's unique, it seems. It has a lot of interesting ambitions that are very large in general, very human scale. But how did you think about that as you set this thing up as to what kind of player something like Frontier should or could be? We're not profiting from Frontier. This is more philanthropic in nature. And of course, we're also spending a lot of money on carbon removal, which certainly isn't making us money. The way that I've viewed this is the ecosystem for carbon removal is so early that the hypothesis is that it will benefit from actors who want to see the ecosystem lay its foundations in the right way and develop in the right way. In a sense, I think we're actually really lucky to not have profit as a motive for the work that we're doing. It allows us to think climate first or ecosystem first, which would not be true if this were a standalone organization outside of Stripe. You talk about the role of geopolitics in all of this. One of the things that the very simple common refrains you'll hear in climate is, well, we could work our butts off in the West and get to nothing, but this is not a regional problem. Carbon doesn't stay in its region, like it's a global problem. So there's sort of like a weakest link in the chain issue going on. What is your more nuanced take on that, I think, very simple objection? Like, why should we bother? Someone else is just going to keep screwing it up for us. Yeah, I mean, I would even extend that. I think that that problem extends outside of geography also to chunks of the climate challenge. If you're working on transportation, that's only a chunk of the problem. If you're working on energy supply, that's only a chunk of the problem. But technologies, new technologies tend to have trickle effects. If you can get renewable energy or any other climate technology to be cheap, other countries and other geographies and other places can benefit from that. So I think localized, there are many examples of localized technology advances having second and third order effects far beyond where they started. I'll take another example. If you look at the direct emissions that Tesla has actually impacted, it's not huge. They're not the majority of cars in the world. I would argue that Tesla's biggest impact was compelling all of the other car companies to actually start taking EVs seriously. And that is not to be discounted. I think that that thinking applies more generally as well. Are there any regions of the world that you find most interesting or important as it relates to either side of this, the emissions themselves or the active removal and sequestration? Every part of the world has to look and say, what is the unique thing that we have? Every part of the world has access to different amounts of sun or wind or geologic storage or water. These are all geophysical constraints and geophysical benefits that every country has to assess for themselves. I was just in Australia, and I think they're potentially a really compelling place for carbon removal because they have huge access to a lot of renewable energy. They've got really good storage solutions and potentially could be a hub, but they're just starting to think about how they can make themselves a hub for carbon removal. And I think that kind of thinking can apply generally as well. What's your impression of the investing piece in all of this? You mentioned maybe you're not a scientist or something, so maybe you're not the person to evaluate new technologies or something. But what does the ecosystem look like now versus five years ago or 10 years ago? How is that evolving? Because it seems like willingness on behalf of VCs or 
earlier stage investors willing to fund R&D type stories is really important. <laughs> you can create the market, but if there's no way of actually implementing via supply, there's nothing we can do. So what's your impression of the health, I guess I'll call it, of the investing ecosystem around these new technologies? It's made a lot of progress. The thing with climate is at the end of the day, you have to move atoms. It is bits in service of atoms. Historically, VC has generally shied away from hard tech, early R&D-esque science efforts. That is starting to change lower carbon energy impact partners, breakthrough energy ventures. There are a lot of really good examples of excellent investors that are putting their funds towards really hard climate problems. I think that there is likely room for more experimentation with different kinds of asset classes and investment models. A lot of these companies have much longer development horizons than a traditional SaaS company and forms of patient capital. For example, I think there's juice to squeeze there to further explore innovative financing mechanisms. For those that are especially interested in the technology side, are there a few, if you had to pick two or three of the existing or emerging technologies for this effort? What would you have people go Google or study or check out? We have listed 20 plus companies that we have purchased from on frontierclimate.com. So you can go check out a bunch there. But some of the companies that I mentioned earlier, Google Charm, Google Climeworks, Google Undo, Running Tide, just to give you a flavor of the kinds of technologies that we're starting to see. A lot of what you've written has, I'm sure, extremely well-informed forecasts or ranges of forecasts for how the two key variables might evolve, those being emissions and removal of carbon from the atmosphere. If you're just hanging out with your friends who love this topic and you're just sort of having a discussion about the spectrum of how this might go, help me understand the edges of that spectrum. So if you've sort of laid out in the post that we'll link to and whatever, some base cases or middle of the fairway expectations, what is like the really good and the really bad outcome look like in your mind between now and 2050, if you had to define the spectrum of outcomes from the edges in? The base case that the IPCC has modeled is around 6 billion tons per year. I would say the worst case is maybe closer to a billion or less tons per year. I think that it is not a foregone conclusion that we even get past that, all the way up to maybe 10 billion tons a year. That's maybe the edges of the possible outcomes. But I think it's worth mentioning that we really don't know where carbon removal is going to end up at this stage. I think that a lot of our focus is how do we get carbon removal on its best possible trajectory? And we don't yet know what that is. The 2030s are a very important decade to get the best solutions to the starting line and then do everything that we can to remove roadblocks for them and help them scale. I would like by 2030 for us, this proverbial us, to have a better idea of where we think carbon removal will or won't be. What will be the suite of approaches that we think are going to make up this collective number and really narrowing those confidence bounds? It's worth re-emphasizing that we are really at the starting line here. We are a couple years into this for the most part. And I think predicting exactly where we will or won't be right now is an impossible task. When you talk to people that are, I'll use the word ignorant, not in a negative sense at all, just they've not personally studied the science of why this is happening and the impacts that it might have. Do you have favorite ways of pointing those people to resources? Because 
and this is a selfish question too, like I would love to read them as well. I'm not a climate scientist. I have a general sense of the consensus that's out there and that it's probably bad if we do nothing or probably very bad if we do nothing. If someone asked me, I couldn't say, well, this is what I think will happen if we do nothing in literal terms. Are there resources that are your favorites? Because all of this incredible effort and spending and innovation is in service of an outcome that I really haven't asked about yet. So what are your favorite ways to help people learn about those potential outcomes of a warming climate? I would point people to the IPCC, which is the canonical resource for much of the science. Carbon Brief also does an amazing job summarizing these things. Those are probably the two resources that I would initially point folks to. You've also highlighted that one way to look at the outcome of this is avoidance of bad outcomes. And I think that's what we often talk about in climate is avoidance of human suffering, avoidance in biodiversity loss, avoidance of bad outcomes. There's another lens that I think is also worthwhile talking about more, which is all of the amazing things that can happen when and if we successfully decarbonize the economy. If we can figure out how to scale up low carbon energy sources, I think there are really amazing new innovations and ways of living that we can open up that we haven't thought about yet. So it's worth thinking not only just what are the bad things that we can avoid, but what are the exciting new opportunities that free energy that doesn't harm the environment are going to open up for humanity. Are there any aspects of the creation of a marketplace that we haven't touched on detailed or otherwise that you think are really important lessons that you've learned trying to stand this thing up and create this pooled market of demand for these technologies? Initially, when we got started, we thought that we were primarily going to play the role of the buyer. That was going to be our dominant role of being the demand for the carbon removal ecosystem. And I think what we've learned is that because carbon removal is so early, you can't just play the role of demand. You have to look out for every bottleneck that is coming your way and do whatever you can to whack-a-mole those bottlenecks to mix metaphors. For example, with carbon removal right now, it's unclear how verification is going to scale for the field. How you measure a ton of biomass sinking is very different from bio-oil injection. And as a buyer, how do we know when the tons that we paid for have actually been delivered? That's a gap that needs to get spun up. So we are working with a number of other ecosystem and players in the space to figure out what should that look like? How do we set that up? How do we help get that going in a robust way? Another example is on the policy front. When a billion dollars, and maybe we get this billion to 10 billion, but when that runs out, we have to have policy mechanisms in place to carry this market forward. So figuring out what will that look like in the future and how do we start to scale the compliance market in a much more robust way? That's another gap. On the supply side, how do we actually help these entrepreneurs with whatever challenges that they are facing to help them scale more quickly, whether it's financing or hiring or finding a co-founder? These are all things that we started to think about because you're trying to grow supply and demand and the rigor of the ecosystem at the same time, which in early ecosystems forces you, we found, to think outside just the role of the buyer and think more holistically about how the field is growing overall. Can you say a little bit about what it's like to work on something like this that's so focused inside of an organization like Stripe? It seems as though the bottom-up portion of this, and you mentioned the firms that you're partnered with on Frontier, other very well-known examples, big technology companies mostly, plus McKinsey, although I guess McKinsey is now a technology company too. What is it like? Because 
would help us understand how this sort of thing might be possible in lots of companies that are trying to impact big, important issues like this. What are the pros and the cons of doing this as part of a very big, well-known company versus, say, launching Frontier, the nonprofit yourself, and doing it that way? Let's even just take to start the example of Stripe Climate. We are getting tens of thousands of businesses to direct a fraction of their revenue to carbon removal, which we then pull together. I don't think that Stripe Climate would have worked as a standalone business because it would have gotten killed by customer acquisition costs. Most businesses don't care about climate that much to put that much effort into it. By piggybacking off of what Stripe is already building, we already do payments for so many companies. If we can make it a single additional click for them to get a really robust climate program set up and leverage Stripe's distribution to do that, that is hugely advantageous to just starting something on your own. I think a lot of folks, especially in Silicon Valley, have the first instinct of going and starting their own company. We need lots of those, and there's certainly nothing wrong with it. But leveraging existing companies' assets and talent and distribution is under-leveraged. Climate is both a challenge of getting the best solutions to the starting line, but also massive deployment. And the thing that bigger companies have is distribution and expertise. I would love to see, for example, how can... Viking or Wolf come up with an incredible induction stove that they then make that sexy and get that scaled everywhere as soon as humanly possible. If you are in the ride-sharing business, how can you accelerate the transition to electric vehicles? That is a business that you are in. That is a business that you know. What are the assets that large companies can bring to bear to help in whatever way they're best suited to? I'll close on a positive, optimistic note. What about this whole endeavor and your personal efforts has you most excited over the next 10 years or beyond? I'm super excited about the momentum that we have seen over the past few years. There is a just amazing community of people in the carbon removal space on the supply side, on the demand side, on the ecosystem side, on the policy side, that at least for this point in time, really want to get this field on its best possible trajectory. And my hope is we can take advantage of that, and bend that curve upward as quickly as we can over the next couple of years. I find this whole thing fascinating. I'm really appreciative of your time. I didn't know almost any of this stuff coming in. It's been really fun for me to read in preparation for our chat today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 